Well, friends, tonight we are thinking about suffering uh, illustrated in the life of William Cooper. But to begin, I want to invite you to stand and hear God's word from Psalm 42. The reason I do that is Cooper himself, in his own expression, was a deep, wounded soul. And as we think about suffering, if you are disturbed by the failures, weaknesses, temptations, doubts, fears, insecurity, and unbelief of believers, even believers whose hymns you sing, then I offer you the sons of Korah from Psalm 42, who themselves suffered and struggled with God. Let me invite you to hear, beginning at verse 5 through the end, This is God's word. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Help us as we ponder the truth of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I've I've given you an outline again. The first page is the outline we'll cover. We're going to walk through the life of William Cooper, born in 1731, died in 1800, and consider his distress. He suffered, perhaps in as many ways as you can think possible, both uh, mental and emotional suffering, physical perhaps as well, Uh, sexual, but certainly uh, social, uh, relational, and spiritual suffering. And he also penned for us a hymn, a fabulous hymn that we sang and we'll look at at the end, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. And so uh, let's begin with Cooper and his life, and let me walk you through uh, some of the major events and his conversion, his writing of hymns, and his death, and then have you consider this hymn that he wrote. Cooper was uh, a preacher's kid. He was uh, born in the manse, so to speak. His father, John, was chaplain to King George II, though evidently not an evangelical believer. And um, this is just prior to the outbreak of the Great Awakening. Uh, You think of George Whitfield, you think of uh, Jonathan Edwards, beginning their ministries just a few years after Cooper is born. He was the fourth child of Anne, who was a tender and loving mother, uh, who died at the age of 34 a few days after giving birth to her seventh child, 
William was born, and then two more were born that died in infancy, and then um, uh, a seventh, uh, who John, who did survive. The only two uh, were were John and William. Uh, Cooper, late in life, uh, writes a poem about his mother's death, death when he's some 60 years old, and, and how it uh, affected him um, and, and wounded his heart and the tears that he cried. But one of the things that compounded it was that the maids, uh, I think, I guess we have to consider that they were well-meaning, but they told him that his mother had, had just simply gone on a journey and would be back. And though he understood at the time that she had died and what that meant and that she was gone, they perpetuated this such that he began to question whether he understood the meaning of death genuinely and began to have hopes rise in his heart that he would then again see her until it finally came home that indeed he would not. And that just compounded the sorrows of, of childhood. Furthermore, then his father, perhaps um, unable to cope with uh, raising children by himself, sent him off to boarding school at the age of six. And um, there he describes in his life uh, how he was tormented. Uh, he was in amidst a company of children and a 15-year-old, he describes in this way in his diary, it will be sufficient to say that he had, by his savage treatment of me, impressed such a dread of his figure upon my mind that I well remember being afraid to lift my eyes upon him higher than his knees, and that I knew him by his shoe buckles better than any other part of his dress. May the Lord pardon him, and may we meet in glory, he would eventually say of him. But sitting alone on a school bench thinking of this tormentor, a verse of scripture did flash to mind, the one that I opened our call to worship with from Psalm 56. The scripture flashed to mind that he had learned, obviously, I will not be afraid. What can man do unto me? And instantly he said, I perceived in myself a briskness of spirits and a cheerfulness which I had never before experienced, and I took several paces up and down the room with joyful alacrity, his gift in whom I trusted. So he found some relief in scripture. Then he got an eye inflammation, and he had to leave the school and was boarded with the, um, the eye doctor for a time, and that actually helped, pulled him out of a situation in which he was being uh, bullied. And then he began to excel. He got into Westminster School and began to excel in academics and athletics. Uh, and not that we should think his whole childhood was filled with suffering. He did uh, form a nonsense club, which was a weekly meeting for the pursuit of trivial pursuits. And, and uh, perhaps uh, about this age as well, he wrote this about himself. William was once a bashful youth. His modesty was such that one might say, to say the truth, he rather had too much. However it happened by degrees, he mended and grew perder. In company was more at ease and dressed a little smarter. So he had, had a bit of a sense of humor, of course, and his childhood was not filled with uh, sorrows, but he was separated from both parents and uh, tasted death and tasted the cruelty of others. And it had an effect on him. Now, he suffered more as a young adult. 
at 18, he was apprenticed to a solicitor. He was going to be um, trained for law, and um, he hated it. He, he hated this call, this life calling that had been sort of placed upon him, uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps by his father. I'm not exactly sure, but, um, but that's likely the case. Uh, and, and he just uh, he hated the study of law. He says, I was struck with such a dejection of spirits as none but they who have felt the same can have the least conception of. Day and night I was upon the rack lying down in horror and rising up in despair. Now he's a poet, <laughs> felt things deeply, but, but he, he uh, profoundly disliked uh, the work, didn't want to do it. And then as a young man, while, while <laughs> job is not going well, he has an outlet. He falls in love with uh, Theodora Cooper. He's actually, they're actually cousins. Uh, and it would not have been inappropriate for him to marry her. They were distant enough. But, um, but they, they um, apparently spent a great deal of time together on the weekends. He stayed at their country home. Uh, they fell in love with one another. They got engaged, and then it's after that that the father steps in and then breaks off the engagement, which uh, which uh, wounded him the rest of his life. He he never uh, officially married. We'll uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, and she never married. Uh, in fact, he wrote uh, many love poems to her over the course of his, of his life under a, 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 a under a, a, a name, um, a different name. But but he thought of her. She thought of him. She evidently, throughout her life, sent him money to help support him, uh, and uh, in, in fact, um, helped with some nursing care late in his life. But it, but it was just a, just heartbreak for a young man, uh, as you can imagine. Then. As well, when he's a, a young adult, his father dies. His close friend, William Russell, drowns while bathing. And he begins to experience, if he hasn't already, severe mental distress. And he makes some attempts on his own life. And um, biographers count for perhaps five attempts over the, attempts over the course of his life. I, I won't go into the details of all those now, but of course he's unsuccessful, thankfully. And then, at the age of 32, under pressure um, to really sort of um, have, a, have a job and a career, uh, a distant family member arranges for him to um, be a clerk in the House of Lords, which is a, which is a, a high calling. But the enemies uh, of his family arrange for him to be publicly examined before so, and he absolutely dreads it. Um, he he he, uh, he can't stand the thought of facing these people publicly, and he uh, he buys poison and any number of ways. Again, feeling as he says, like a man when he arrives at the place of execution, for months on end, uh, he tries once again to kill himself. A maid finds him, um, and he is placed into. Uh, Mental care and supervision in a hospital, under the under the care of a of a godly evangelical believer and physician named Dr. Nathaniel Cotton, who loved him and helped him and shared the gospel and God's mercy and grace with him, and and uh, he began to 
believe. And then wandering in the garden one day, he opens a Bible and reads of Christ's sorrow over the death of Lazarus and his hope in a pitying Savior who grieves begins to grow. And then he opens the Bible randomly some time later and to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And let me just read that to you. His eyes fall upon this text. God put forward him, Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And uh, propitiation means Jesus turned aside the wrath of God by facing it for us and frees us so that we can be forgiven. He says, immediately I receive strength to believe. This is his conversion. And the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made. My pardon sealed in his blood and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and I received the gospel. And this is again while he's in, uh, in, in care. He writes Uh, An early hymn, all my chains at once were broken, from my feet my fetters fell, and that word in pity spoken snatched me from the gates of hell. Grace divine, how sweet the sound, sweet the grace that I have found. So he, um, uh, he loves the physician so well, and he loves where he's living, and his new conversion experience, he stays an extra approximately 12 months, although he was considered well enough to leave. And then he finds lodging, and perhaps this was arranged for him, uh, in the home of of, uh, Mary and Morley Unwin. And and Morley apparently is uh, something of a retired, I think, uh, pastor of some sort. But they invite him in, and then they invite him to remain as a permanent lodger. And uh, they have a number of children themselves, and, and they had enjoyed sweet fellowship together with one another, uh, times of great prayer and, and walks in the countryside and reading the Bible. And it was just a sweet time for his soul as this family. And you can imagine for him having not had that kind of experience, how wonderful it was. In fact, Mary, though only eight years older than him, really functions in many ways as a mother figure for him the rest of his life. Um, And so it was a great time until a year and a half in, Morley dies. He falls off a horseback. And he had just previously told his wife that should anything ever happen to me, don't feel obligated to ask our our border to leave. It's, It's okay. And in God's providence, he had told that to her, and she did. And so she, with her children, kept the border, which would not have been uncommon. Uh, and John Newton uh, makes a pastoral visit. He's from a neighboring town. We looked at Newton last week. He's a pastor, hymn writer, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Uh, he was a real friend of sinners. He knew himself to be such a sinner. He makes a pastoral visit to look in on the family, and they're so helped by his ministry that they move towns to be under his care, and so they end up uh, sort of across the garden in, in homes that share uh, property of some sort. And there, Newton, in friendship with Cooper, and, and Newton says he, he never had a more intimate friend than William Cooper. They share life together. They garden together, do carpentry. 
Uh, they have a printing press that they share. They've got pets of all kinds. Cooper particularly loved rabbits and dogs and guinea pigs and canaries and goldfinches and a magpie and all these things in God's world. Uh, and then the fellowship, the sweet enjoyment of walking with Newton and sort of being a, a quasi-assistant as Newton would walk uh, and make pastoral visits, Cooper would go with them, and they would pray together for families, and, and Cooper would look in on the poor and the sick, and, uh, and um, he would help in the church in leading singing and other things. So he's, uh, they enjoy years uh, together in friendship. And then in 1770, John Cooper, the, the only surviving sibling, dies. And Newton sees signs of depression again in William and suggests that they should compile a hymn book together. Cooper had already written some poetry and had, uh, had, had uh, shown great success at that, actually. And uh, so Newton suggests, hey, why don't we together uh, compile a hymn book, collect some of the hymns we've already written, add some more, and they begin that work. It's called The Only Hymns. There's a copy of it with Ken back there afterwards if you want to see it. Some 200-plus are Newton's. 68 of them are Cooper's. Uh, and, and the hymn book is divided into three sections um, the, the first section, very long, on particular scripture passages, hymns that sort of flow right out of texts. Then the middle section is on just sort of various subjects, New Year's, holidays, uh, morning and evening, different kinds of occasions. The last third of it is about the, the troubles, the distresses, uh, the comforts that we need from God in the midst of life. And over half of Cooper's hymns are found in that portion of the hymn book. And uh, we're going to look at some of those, or we're going to look at uh, uh, his most um, well-known, perhaps, one in just a minute. But So here we are. We're in the only hymns. And I just want to tell you about some of his hymns and, and point you to some of his poetry. If, if you flip past the first page, I've given you three pages, and we won't look at them all, of texts, hymn texts, uh, in, in three basic categories, gospel-oriented hymns, where he understands the saving work of Christ and grace. And then hymns about our sanctification and, and how God changes us and, and the honesty he has in the suffering. And then finally about suffering. And let me just highlight uh, a number of them for you. We sang, page one there, there is a fountain filled with blood. Uh, the die, stanza two, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Just a beautiful poetry about Jesus. Ere God had built the mountains, go down to the third and fourth stanzas, uh, where, he, where he says, thus wisdom's words discover. Wisdom is Jesus there. Thy glory and thy grace, thou everlasting lover of our unworthy race. Thy gracious eye surveyed us, ere stars were seen above. In wisdom thou hast made us, and died for us in love. And couldst thou be delighted with creatures such as we, who, when we saw thee, slighted and nailed thee to a tree? unfathomable wonder and mystery divine the voice that speaks in thunder says sinner 
I am thine. So he has this wonderful view of the saving love of Christ. And then uh, to keep the lamp alive on the right side of your page, just highlighting 1, 3, 5, and 6 there. To keep the lamp alive with oil, we fill the bowl. Tis water makes the willow thrive and grace that feeds the soul. Stanza three, beware of Peter's word, nor confidently say, I never will deny thee, Lord, but grant I never may. Stanza five, retreat beneath his wings and in his grace confide. This more exalts the king of kings than all your works beside. In Jesus is our store. Grace issues from his throne. Whoever says, I want no more, confesses he has none. You taste grace, and it's like candy, if you like candy. You want more, right? And so um, Cooper, Cooper understands the gospel, believes in the saving work of Jesus, that he's the lover of his soul. And you see again in his hymns about sanctification, the change, and in fact, the suffering involved in change that he undergoes. Uh, hark, my soul, it is the Lord. Well, uh, let me, actually, let me, stanza three, bottom of the front page there. Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Yet, I love thee and adore. Oh, for grace to love thee more. Right? Just beautiful words of honesty. Uh, I know I stink at living the Christian life. You love me far more than I than, than, uh, than I love you. Um, the second page of your notes, the, of, of text of hymns, the Lord will happiness divine on contrite sorrows bring, uh, hearts, uh, contrite hearts bestow. Then tell me, gracious God, is mine a contrite heart or no? You get this sense of questioning himself. But it's really the sense of the Romans 7, I think, where the Apostle Paul is saying, you know, I want to do good, and evil is right there with me. I have this, I have this heart that's confused about itself. I, I think I've been changed by Jesus, but I haven't been perfectly changed. Notice the language. I sometimes think myself inclined to love thee if I could, but often feel another mind averse to all that's good. My best desires are faint and few. I fain would strive for more. But when I cry, my strength renews seem weaker than before. Thy saints are comforted, I know, and love thy house of prayer. I therefore go where others go, but find no comfort there. Oh, make this heart rejoice or ache. Decide this doubt for me. And if it be not broken, break and heal it if it be. Just a beautiful picture, I think, of how we feel as, as believers who struggle with our assurance of salvation, struggle with this mixed heart that we can just get rid of. And then on the right side of your page there, oh, for a closer walk with God. Notice stanzas two and three I've given you are not in the Trinity hymnal if you're looking for them there. But um, let me just highlight four and five. Return, oh, holy dove, return. Sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship 
only the. I think Cooper has a robust understanding of grace and sin and its mix in his heart. They're both there. Uh, and, um, and then uh, we'll move on to his hymns about affliction and suffering. Your last page. Let me just highlight these, uh, a number of these as well. Um, God of my life, to thee I call, afflicted at thy feet I fall. When the great water floods prevail, leave me, leave not my trembling heart to fail. And then stanza four, I love this line. Poor though I am, despised for God, yet God my God forgets me not. I love that line. Um, heal us, Emmanuel, on your the right side at the top. Hear our prayer. We wait to feel thy touch. Deep wounded souls to thee repair. And Savior, we are such. And stanza three, remember him who once applied with trembling for relief. Lord, I believe with tears he cried, oh, help my unbelief. And uh, so you have any number of text where Cooper puts in word uh, the afflictions and troubles and distresses of being a Christian and life in a fallen world. He was hounded, hounded uh, by trouble. In Let's go back to his life and, and, and uh, finish there and then just a couple comments about the hymn. His adult sufferings, and of course he's an adult now living with the Unwins and enjoying their fellowship in that of Newton. But um, in 1772, he begins to uh, suffer again with depression. Newton writes to his wife, uh, to, to Newton's wife, about Cooper. Dear Sir, Cooper is in the depths as much as ever. And it's also the year that Mary Unwin's daughter, the last of her children, leaves. She's uh, engaged in marriage. She's going to leave the home. And now, now it really is an issue. They can't live there together without any children or any other people in the home. And, of course... By this time as well, you know that gossip has um, has spread about them. The, the, they had not uh, uh, done anything un, uh, immoral together. But um, because the last daughter is going to leave, Cooper, so he doesn't lose her, proposes. And uh, she accepts, and they're engaged to be married. They're going to live together. Uh, as husband and wife, but but probably not in that kind of intimacy, but just that they could legitimately be together. But but then his faltering mental state makes it such that uh, the engagement needs to be ended. In late 1772, he writes his last hymn, Light Shining Out of Darkness, which is the one we'll look at here. I've read different things on it. Late 1772, early 1773, but also January of 1773, this great cloud of mental darkness envelops him, and a month later, uh, he has a dream. And it all but destroys him, mentally and spiritually. He never divulges the exact contents of that dream, but through it he came to believe that he had been utterly forsaken by God, with all hope of salvation gone forever. In fact, he, he felt doomed to, the lower, to a lower place in hell than Judas himself. Uh, thought, had all kinds of irrational 
thoughts in association with this. He thought God demanded that he kill himself. He thought Mary hated him. He thought, Newton says, Cooper, and Cooper describes it himself, that he thought butcher's meat was human flesh. He wouldn't take any. Um, I mean, just, um, he became irrational. Um, Some would say in our day, mentally insane and very much incapacitated by this. Uh, both mentally and spiritually, devastated him the rest of his life spiritually. He believed. Uh, he, he never renounced the faith. He believed the gospel was true. He believed that he had been converted previously, that he had really been rescued. He believed in election and the perseverance of saints, that you could not be lost when the Savior had grabbed hold of you, except... He believed there was one exception, and that was himself. And so for the, the rest of his life, he, he despaired uh, of himself ever being at home with the Lord in heaven. Uh, mentally, he did recover some, not to say that he didn't have, have struggle with times of, of depression as well as perhaps some other kinds of irrationality. He certainly was spiritually irrational at that point. But he did recover enough, and under the help of friends, he had a very successful career as a poet. Cooper is both known within the church as a wonderful hymn writer, but he's known uh, in the secular world as an outstanding poet. He was uh, a poet laureate for the nation. He wrote a 5,000-line poem, uh, 100-some pages long, called The Task. Actually, I think it if I've got it right, um, at the suggestion of a friend who told him that she loved his poetry and wanted, a, wanted something humorous about a sofa. <laughs> and he ends up with 5,000 lines. Of course, it, it ends up being about much more than that. But it, it gives him uh, national recognition. Samuel Taylor, Taylor Coleridge said Cooper was the best modern poet. Uh, he writes... Um, well, he, he writes any, any number of more things, but, but Newton says of him uh, this, uh, these last years of his life that though, he could, that though Cooper could give comfort, he could never receive comfort. His final work is called Castaway, uh, in which uh, he is describing himself, he believes, Castaway Forever. But I'll just say this about the task, that bit of poetry. If, you've, if you're familiar with the, the phrase, variety is the very spice of life that gives it all its flavor, that's, uh, that's William Cooper for you. But um, on to the end of his life and then this, this hymn. Um, he and both Mary uh, grow frail. Mary, ahead of him, suffers a number of uh, strokes, and he cares for her until about 1795 when a relative friend of Cooper named John Johnston, takes them both in to care for them, and he sees her through to her death in 1796, four years before his, in 1800. He's still convinced right to the very end, evidently, at the age of 69, that he is a castaway. Yet, John Johnston, Johnson, who had brought him into his home, said who was present at Cooper's death noticed that the expression on his face upon his death was of calmness and composure mingled as it were with holy 
surprise. Perhaps, and many who knew him best believe this to be true, that he discovered, in fact, that he was not a castaway. And, of course, it is true that if the Lord has once grabbed hold of you to save you, he will never let you go, though you might struggle to hold on. What that means. We think he proved true some words he had previously written. The saints should never be dismayed, nor sink in hopeless fear. For when they least expect his aid, the Savior will appear. Maybe that's what he tasted. Newton certainly believed it. Newton heard about Cooper's death and said, I was glad when I heard of it. He suffered long here, but eternity is long enough to make amends for all. And so, Cooper is one of these people we sometimes don't know what to do with ourselves. How do you pastor somebody in this condition? It's wonderful when you're a Christian and you know it. It's helpful when you're not a Christian and you know you're not. And this morning we looked at the person who thinks that they are, when they aren't, they're the hardest nut to crack. But what do you do with the person who is, but thinks that he isn't? You keep bringing him back to the cross as much as you can, but Newton could never persuade him. It's a difficult thing. Here in his hymn, God moves in a mysterious way. We catch, I think... uh, something of Cooper's mind about these things, though he seemed to have forgotten or not been able to believe it himself. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You know what that means? It means God's there, but you can't see him. His feet are buried in water. The the storm cloud hides him as it rolls over you. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, God treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You think of Deuteronomy 29.29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us belong to us and to our children forever. But there are secret designs of God that he works in his sovereign will and we won't always understand them what should we do ye fearful saints fresh courage take the clouds ye so much dread they're big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head we're we're fearful of dark providences we're afraid of of what that cloud, that rain and thunderstorm might bring. And he says, you know what it brings? It brings mercy. Showering on your head. It is a much better line than, you know, behind uh, every cloud there's a silver lining. It's, it's more than that. The clouds themselves dump buckets of blessing, he says. So, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Don't reason out. 
from your circumstances to understand the disposition of God towards you. Reason from the cross to understand his disposition towards you and then bring that into your circumstances. The frowning providence is God's smiling face because he loves you. You may not understand it, I understand. You may not like it, we understand. But the cross tells me, and and this somehow Cooper in his mind, so distressed, couldn't put it all together late in life, but he did in this hymn, God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud, the start of it, may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The, the end of it will be sweet. Ephesians 1, one, you think of, 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 of the Apostle Paul talking about how God works all things together um, to work all things. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of a different text in my brain. Forgive me. Uh, yes, but I'm, I am thinking of, thank you, uh, Ephesians, um, God works all things according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is working everything out. He has a purpose for all things, a purpose of grace for his people. Though the beginning of it in our life might be bitter, at the end it will be sweet, he says. But blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. It, and this is the danger that we, with, with an unbelieving perspective, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. We're certain to mistake what God is doing with us. But God is his own interpreter. And he will, though perhaps not in this life for us. He will make it plain. God is not obligated in this life to tell me his whole mind. I'm so finite, I couldn't begin to hold it all in. And I'm fallen and I'm twisted. Friends, is your soul ever downcast? Mine is. Put your hope in God, says the psalmist, and look to the cross of Christ and see there that God has loved you and that love shall never let you go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you administer the comfort and the peace which passes all understanding and guard our hearts and minds. Grant that no ill dreams would molest us. Grant us hope in your crucified Son, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.